Are we better off than before? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Marion Tupi. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Marion Tupi. Marion is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He is the founder and editor of humanprogress.org and is also the co-author of Super Abundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. That book is the basis of our conversation today. Marion, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you very much for having me. And it's great to have you on. So, Marion, we base each episode on a question and theme and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, are we better off than before? And really, that's a great theme and question to explore your book, uh, Super Abundance. And first, I'd like to start off with some context setting. So, the book itself starts out with addressing directly the often sort of stated proposition that there is an inverse relationship between population growth and the availability of resources. So to set the sort of context and stage for the thing that your book is really looking at, and also most of our conversation today, can you, can you talk a bit about what that proposition is and, and this sort of thing that people often believe and often repeat? Right. So for the longest time, people felt that if you have more people on the planet consuming more resources, uh, you know, you are going to eventually run out of those resources or the resources were going to become so expensive that ultimately our standard of living would have to decline. And uh, what we have shown in the book is that uh, in fact, uh, the world's population has grown from about 1 billion in 1800 to 8 billion today, but uh, our standards of living on globally, on average, are about 12 times higher adjusted for inflation, about 30 times higher in uh, the Western advanced democracies. And we are not even talking about, uh, you know, individual items like uh, the, the price of food and things like that, which, which declined. So really the book uh, was to try to provide an encyclopedical, encyclopedical evidence going through hundreds of different items and showing what happens uh, as population increases. And uh, what we found was, you know, over a period of 170 years, what we found was that everything is, is getting uh, cheaper. Now, in deference to our critics, um, you know, some people may even say, well, maybe population is not that much of a problem. You know, after all, population of the world is going to peak in about 2060 or 2080 and then start declining. Um, so maybe the population isn't that much of a problem, but it's our consumption. In other words, that you could have a, a leveled population or even a decreasing population, but as they consume more stuff, um, then, then uh, you may also run up against some sort of a resource limit. But in fact, um, it, it's, it's the same, whether, whether you have many more people consuming or fewer people, but consuming more, uh, in every case, we should be looking at, in either case, we should be looking at, uh, resources becoming more expensive. And in fact, they are becoming cheaper. Right. No, that's an excellent overview. I'm excited to get into very specific points on some things you just said. But before I ask my main follow-up question, I, I just thought to ask you as well, from a personal perspective, was it just this sort of fact that people often state about this sort of doomsday type of proposition that made you interested in, in writing a book about it? Or how did the actual project itself come about? I'm curious. Um, well, in frankness, I mean, 
I, I, I can't say that, uh, you know, environmental economics or stuff like that was my primary choice or my great love. Um, my primary goal in life, I would say, as certainly working for the Cato Institute, but in general how I feel, is to protect human freedom, both political and economic. I just, you know, I grew up under communism and, uh, you know, I fell in love with capitalism. I haven't fallen in love with free market because people pay me to do that. I fall in love with the free market when I saw what a full a supermarket looked like when I first traveled to the West. So that had a sort of formative um, formative impact on me. And uh, what I started noticing about 20 years ago is that the environmental movement uh, uh, started to be a depository for all sorts of uh, anti-free market and anti-individual freedom um, ideas. So, you know, the original uh, environmentalists, uh, you know, in the 1960s, for example, what they wanted was basically for us to do less damage to the environment. But they were convinced that you could have a flourishing population, that you could have uh, higher standards of living and at the same time, um, you know, not spewing so much uh, soot into the air and things like that. But then over right. the last but, – but then the, the later, later kinds of environmentalists uh, – Basically, uh, they first of all, they elevated Mother Nature and Gaia and Earth to a position of almost a divinity. And uh, they decreased the importance of humans up to a point where many environmentalists started talking about human beings as a cancer on the planet. You know, And there are some serious academics who are arguing that uh, we shouldn't have any humans in the world. Um, you know, that they're they not in favor of depopulation. They're, they're, they're in favor of extermination. So the environmental movement became sort of uh, almost like a religious cult that was deeply anti-human. And then it also assumed all sorts of anti-capitalist, anti-free market, um, uh, you know, ideas. Uh, recently, only recently, the head of the United Nations said that in order to save the environment, we have to completely rejig our economic system and get rid of capitalism. And, and that, at that point, I was like, okay, well, I have to look into this um, and, and see what, if anything, I can write that would, uh, that, would, that would change the direction in which we are moving. Now, the book is deliberately not talking about climate change. There are plenty of more, there are plenty of, you know, more knowledgeable people who have written about climate change. I'm specifically looking at resources. But yeah, uh, that's a very long answer to a very short question. Why did I do this? And that's because I started seeing the environmental movement as a as the primary vehicle uh, for the forces of anti-freedom. Right. No, and that, that was great that it was a long answer because I think it, that provides a lot of context from where this book is coming from and also where your thought process is. And before we leave that point, I actually just want to touch on that environmentalism angle further because you were sort of saying that, yeah, like, you know, earlier forms of environmentalism or environmental concern were essentially about minimizing human uh, impact on the direct environment and environmental damage. But it sounds like you're saying now things seem to be a little bit less about respecting the environment and more about effectively empowering certain people and institutions to run the economy a certain way um if i understand you correctly like it's really about using the environmental ism sort of discussion and context for really about controlling certain outcomes is what i'm hearing you kind of saying there yeah i mean if my understanding of the free market and of capitalism that it's ultimately about the consumer you are trying to provide the consumer with as many choices as possible people's needs are infinite consequently when people are given the choice 
um, they they will consume more stuff, more energy, more clothes, bigger houses, uh, maybe two cars per family rather than one, maybe even three cars. You know, so so our our desires are infinite, and the free market is amazing at pro- providing people with what they want at an ever cheaper price, and so. Uh, and so in that sense, my analysis of the situation is not different from the environmentalists. They are seeing capitalism from exactly the same perspective as I do. It's just that they find it objectionable. Right. They think they think that that uh, because of resources and because of the environment, you have to restrict people's choices and people's consumption. And you you may you may even want to go as far as to embrace degrowth, which means deliberate shrinkage of the economy. Um, you know. And, and, and that would not only be bad for personal freedom and for our standard of living, it would be absolutely horrible for social, um, for social peace. I mean, you know, when, when an economy grows at 1%, like what we are seeing in Europe, for example, people are on each other's throats because, because uh, you know, the, the, the pie is growing so slowly um, that um, that that. If you want a bigger share, you have to take it from somebody else. Whereas if the pie is growing fast, you know, then there is more for everybody and there is more social social concord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting to note with some of those folks that are talking about degrowth and shrinking the economy and all those other types of narratives that one thing that's notably not also declining is 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 the state and their position in it to be regulating the economies. There's there's always going to be in these in these people's minds it seems some sort of political elite or state guidance and, and a role for those intellectuals to do things on that side, but whether the economy and the free market survives is a different story, right? Yes, and uh one of the big puzzles for me is of course the youth, right? I mean, I'm not that old, but when I when I when I look at the opinion polls and uh, actually statements ma- by made by you know people in their twenties, they are they, they hold two incompatible things in their minds. On the one hand, uh, we should protect nature at all costs, uh, even if it means lower economic growth. And by the way, why is everything so expensive and why I cannot afford to buy a house? Right. Well, you cannot afford to buy a house because you are empowering people who are making it impossible for us to build more houses. Right. And, and it's astonishing to me that with all the trillions of dollars that we are spending on education, we cannot point out this basic discrepancy, this basic, um, uh, you know, this basic contradiction uh, to, to the young. Yes, absolutely. That's an excellent point. And on that sort of note, like we were sort of talking about environmentalists and other folks might define uh, what their idea of progress and, and, and is in, in their own way. But um, when, you, when you talk in the introduction to your book and you're sort of getting to the idea of like, you know, is progress actually around us? And like, you know, we're actually starting to get into this idea of abundance and superabundance. Um, that word comes up progress for, for, you know, for the context of our discussion. When you say progress, what, what are you talking about? Is it strictly economic growth or is it other things like when, when we're talking about progress throughout our conversation today? What do you mean by that word? Well, as the founder and editor of humanprogress.org, uh, which I hope that your listeners will check out, I, I hope that I have a convincing answer. No, I'm not just talking about economics, but I want to start with economics first. Uh, look, for the longest time, people lived on $2 per person per day. Now it's something like $40 per person per day, adjusted for inflation globally. We used to live to 25 or 30 years. Now we live to 80 years. 
um, you know, all that wealth which we have created has also been translated into better sewage systems so that we don't, uh, you know, live amidst excrement, uh, but are much healthier and don't suffer from all sorts of diseases which were prevalent amongst our forefathers. We are better educated. We are better fed up to a point where famines have disappeared from the Western world. In fact, much of most of the world. And uh, the problem is obesity. So on the economic side, you know, uh, all this wealth that we have created is not just about more money in your pocket and, and a better car. It's also better sewage system, better, uh, better education, better roads, uh, better hospitals, uh, art, and, and so on and so forth. But it's not just economics. I mean, we, we are also much more progressive. I, I don't mean that in American left-wing sense. Right. We have progressed much more in terms of human morality. Um, you know, um, um, human sacrifice, gone, uh, explicit torture, gone, um, uh, uh, violence against animals, gone, subjugation of women, gone, um, child sacrifice, um, did I mention that already? Um, uh, you know, um, all sorts of things that we used to do, um, and, and we don't do anymore, uh, 50% of the population, women, are now on equal footing with men for the first time in history in the Western society. Gays and lesbians can get married. I mean, who would have thought that would be imagined? Uh, you know, that would be possible. Um, um, uh, you know, um, w w what else? Uh, ethnic minorities, um, again, equal footing. Um, uh, caring for animals. Um, you know, we, we used to do terrible things to animals just for fun. Uh, in 15th century Paris, uh, one of the biggest attractions was lowering of cats into fire to see how much they would scream. Mm -hmm. uh, today, um, you know, I sometimes envy the dogs and cats which are brought up in the West and the care that they are, you know, <laughs> shown by their owners. So, so, so it's not just that we are richer and much more comfortable. I think that we are also much more moral. Uh, homicide as a percentage mm -hmm. of uh, population has decreased dramatically. I know it doesn't feel like it in parts of the United States, but that, that's a mistake. Um, right. You know, 80 out of 100,000 Italians could expect to be murdered uh, in, during the Renaissance. Today in the United States, it's like 3.5 or 4. In Italy, it's 1. Um, wars. Wars used to be uh, the norm, meaning, you know, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, Great powers were at war 100% of the time. If it was springtime, the armies moved out and invaded somebody else's territory. Today, the default is peace, which is why when you do actually have a war between two countries like Ukraine and Russia, um, it, it comes as such a surprise. Right. No, that's like those are excellent points, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I had, I'm gonna press into a different direction on that one later because I think a lot of that, especially as your book sort of comes to an end, talks about really some of the things holding this together is in fact you know sort of that lowercase l sort of liberal democratic systems that we talk about in the West. So I, I think that was great context, but I'm excited to get to that. But I'm gonna park it because there's a couple other questions I want to get to first. So as far as how all this comes into being in the book i want to start with actually just a quick discussion of part one of the book you actually call part one of, of your book uh, thanos's deadly idea so can you first explain the namesake of that part and also what readers can expect to find when they read part one of the book what are you trying to establish there well, you know, the, the, the book is filled with statistics. So what we wanted to do is to make it, make the issue come alive by uh, making it sort of contemporary and modern. And of course, almost everybody has seen the 
uh, the Avengers uh, franchise, right? And in the franchise, the big baddie is Thanos. And Thanos uh, is a Malthusian. He's obsessed with this idea, first promulgated by an English um, economist and preacher, Thomas Malthus, in the 18th century, is that as population expands, uh, resources uh, must decrease. And in fact, Thanos' obsession in those movies is that um, resources are finite, um, population is uh, growing at a faster pace. Therefore, you know, he is on a quest to kill half of the population in the universe and he succeeds, right? So, um, so, so Thanos had this idea that when you have more people, resources must increase in price. And in fact, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. Uh, because when you have a bigger population, you also have more people coming up with new ideas, which then translate into inventions and innovations which make our lives better, right? So humans, far from being a drag on resources, are actually the producers of resources. They increase the amount of resources that we have. Today, after 100 years of burning fossil fuels, we have more reserves of gas and oil than we had uh, 100 years ago. How did that happen? Well, because humans have found more deposits. We have more food than before. Why? Because we have GMO foods and uh, better yielding um, crops, which uh, allow us to harvest much more food per acre of land than we used to before. So these are just some of the ways in which humans... Anyway, my point is that um, Thanos was wrong. Humans are not just consumers. They're also creators of resources. Mm -hmm. And on average, we create more than we consume. And on that exact point, in the first chapter, actually, you sort of provide what you call like a, a brief summary of apocalyptic thought. Now, of course, I always when people are listening to the podcast, I always encourage people always read the books we're talking about and interviewing people on because there's so much more in there than we'll ever be able to cover in a chat today. But so I don't want to be un unfair to all the work that's in there. But to, to sort of summarize some of what that apocalyptic thought is, uh, Marianne, do, do you find that a lot of that kind of apocalyptic thinking, disaster thinking, you know, um, the, the sort of idea that we're going to run ourselves dry on certain resources and so on and so forth, is most of it reliant on the kind of thinking that you just outlined right there, which is that people sort of take constant and for granted what's happening in today's moment and say, well, if this sort of runs itself the way it is now, at X amount of time, then we're going to end up at Y, which is sort of zero. Like is a lot of, is the different stages of apocalyptic thought, if you will, that you've traced and looked at and studied and, and even the most recent types of apocalyptic thought in the 1970s and 80s, is it really just based on that thinking that people just in a flawed manner hold what's happening today constant say, well, if it runs for so many years, we're going to be in trouble and they don't think of, of humans and, and the market or whatever else as sort of a, a creation process as much as a consumption process. Um, uh, that's a, that's an excellent question. I think that the apocalyptic view of the world has probably many fathers. Uh, one of them could be biological, which is that we are, you know, the moment you are, you come to life, you are basically on a journey to dying. You know, it's, it's, it's the end of it. And I think that, um, you know, very often, uh, People sort of assume that just as human life must have an end uh, necessarily, so must so must the world. And now this is encouraged by uh, basically all the monotheistic religions, 
have an apocalypse uh, baked into it. So if you are, uh, whether you are born within the Christian context or the Muslim context, or even Jewish context to some extent, though not exactly, because the Jews, part of the Jews don't have a concept of afterlife. Um, part, part of the Jewish tradition does have a concept of afterlife. Uh, but, but even once you move beyond the monotheistic, monotheistic religions um, in, in the Hindu and Buddhist and uh, Taoist traditions, you also have a concept of destruction and renewal and so on. So, so the, the, this thing is so old and so ingrained in our minds uh, that uh, that that it must play a role. Another another reason why I think that you know apocalypse plays a role is that um, is that of course for 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 hundreds of thousands of years you couldn't see the effects of innovation on in everyday existence. Right? We have not evolved to internalize the possibility of um, of continuous innovation right uh, even when innovations happen let's say uh, the chariots and the horse uh, 4000 bc in uh, in or 3000 bc in uh, ancient sumer um um uh, these innovations when they did take place they were so incredibly rare right uh, they, that you wouldn't really see new innovations coming online for generations, sometimes thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of years before something new came along that improved your life. And so we never really lived in a world that that where, where you could see change happening every day, such as innovations that are happening every day. In my lifetime, I moved from a rotary telephone in communist Czechoslovakia to a digital telephone, to a flip, pl- uh, flip um, uh, what is it, flip uh, telephone, to a smartphone f- from 1 to 15, right? And so uh, we are at a very strange sort of very ahistorical part of history, which is that... Right. Not only do we see innovations happening every day, but we also expect innovation to happen every day and to improve our lives. And so it is. It is for for that reason. I don't. You know, it it, it is it is not surprising that our perception of the world should be static. In other words, mm. extrapolating into the future what will happen to current trends without injecting into it the possibility of humans changing things for the better through innovation. Right. And I think it sounds like another ingredient, sort of, if you were to take someone's apocalyptic thinking today, let's say, um, it, it's something you just touched on right there. I think it's a very interesting point now that you mention it is that um, the pace at which some people are used to certain things changing or the pace of technology and how we use things, you know, the fact that the Internet's ubiquitous, the fact that we're doing what we're doing right now, which would have been considered some weird magical miracle 100 years ago, uh, talking to each other over various pipelines and ones and zeros. It seems that people today sort of even take for granted um, even just the basics of how technology improves over one year to the next. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day that said the iPhone hasn't really changed uh, in many years and they were making fun of Apple because they were anti-Apple person. I'm like, and I'm tech savvy myself a little bit. And I'm like, well, if you actually look at the kind of processing power even that's changed between those phones just in two or three or four years and the kinds of photos that are being taken, you know, there, there's a lot of progress there just in a very small but subtle sense. So, is it also is it also that we feel like are we in sort of like a poverty of riches in the sense that every day there's even microprocessor and things that change that we don't appreciate? That's an interesting point. We might not even appreciate subtle changes because they're so fast in their own right. 
Yes, progress is gradual uh, very often and, um, you know, incremental like the iPhone. And, and so often we don't see it. But, you know, if you could uh, compare iPhone 1 and then overnight convert to iPhone 15, exactly, uh, yeah. you would be astonished. You know. Exactly. Yeah. And but I but I think to your point, people used to have to wait maybe two generations for that kind of leap. We had to wait a few iPhone releases in our lifetimes. That's interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um and before we move on to some other questions I have about the rest of the book, I just wanted you to share for our listeners here if they're not familiar. So who who was Julian Simon and what was the bet that made him famous? Well, Julian Simon was an economist at the University of Maryland. He died very young, unfortunately, in 1998, I believe. But more importantly, he was a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, uh, a position which I now have. Um, and uh, and um, he, but 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 he was uh, he was a much more important and much better scholar than I am in a sense that he had a genuinely new insight. And that, that is that in the 1970s and in the 1980s, even into the 1960s, everybody was convinced that overpopulation was going to be a problem and we were going to run out of resources. And unlike me, I have a lot of friends and a lot of intellectual peers who are arguing for the same things that I'm arguing for, right? But Julian was completely alone. And it took massive cajones to be able to stand up to the entire zeitgeist, you know, the world's, the world's most important thinkers, Every world government was complaining about overpopulation and what to do about it, you know, concern. And there was Julian Simon uh, at the University of Maryland basically saying, no, hang on a second. I'm looking at the data and I'm seeing world's population increasing, but resources actually are becoming more abundant. You know, they are becoming cheaper. So what's going on here? So, so Julian was the one who first pushed back against this uh, overpopulation doomsterism. And uh, he made a bet with uh, Paul Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich is still alive. He's a biologist at the University of Stanford University uh, in California. He's about 91, 92 now. And uh, Paul was the biggest um, proponent of overpopulation and running out of resources. In 1980, they, they had a bet that would come to fruition 10 years later, meaning in 1990, on... Um, uh, the price of five different metals, uh, tungsten, zinc, uh, copper, chromium, and something else. And um, the bet was for $1,000. And um, when the bet came to an end in 1990, all of those became less expensive. So Paul Ehrlich lost that bet. And that should have been the end uh, of the whole overpopulation, overconsumption of resources idea. But it didn't. And uh, part of the reason why we wrote this book is because the public opinion certainly hasn't caught up to, um, to, 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 to the outcome of the bet and to the Simonian wisdom. Uh, a lot of people in the world still maintain that as population increases, uh, then, uh, you know, we are going to run our resources. And, 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 and even people who are smart enough to realize that actually population is going to stop decreasing very, very soon comparatively, they still maintain that, you know, through increased consumption, we are going to run out of resources. And what we are saying is that's not true. So Julian, so we, we are basically expanding on Julian Simon's work. Mm. And I think that's actually an excellent point to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Marion Tupi today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. 
Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking to Marion Tupi today. So, Marion, I think the first half was great. We discussed a lot, including um, whether or not, right at the tail end of our conversation, uh, when we were talking about um, Mr. Uh, Julian Simon there and the bet that made him famous, we were talking about whether or not uh, things have indeed uh, gotten better and cheaper in certain ways and whether abundance was on the increase rather than the decrease. Um, But one thing I like about your book is after you kind of discussed the certain kinds of things that we were discussing in the first half, you, you hit part two, which basically says measuring abundance, right? So this is like, okay, now let's actually get into the data and actually, um, you know, get in, get into some frameworks that actually sort of prove this point that you're essentially talking about, which of course there's so much in the book. So I'm certainly not asking for you to talk about graphs here today, but I was just wondering for our listener, if you could sort of trace for us what's going on, um, in that part two, specifically related to the the Simon Abundance framework, I thought that was very interesting. So, if you could just give the the listener an idea of what what kind of work went into part two and what it's all about in your book, right? So that's the meat and potatoes of the book, so to speak, where we provide the evidence for increasing abundance. And what we do, we measure the nominal prices of resources relative to nominal hourly wages of the consumers. And we can do that for China, we can do it for Canada, we can do it for the United States or any other country in the world for which we have data. And basically, we come up with this idea of a time price. You take a nominal price of a commodity or resource, be it a pound of pork or a, or a, uh, or a ton of zinc, and then we divide it by nominal hourly wage. So we are dealing with nominal dollars. And then you see... How long would a typical person, maybe a blue-collar worker or an unskilled laborer, have to work in order to buy a pound of pork in, say, 1980 versus in 2022? And if in 1980 uh, your typical worker had to work maybe an hour to get a pound of pork, but only half an hour to get a pound of pork in 2022, then we can say that that worker is twice as well off as he was before, right? His abundance has increased by 100%. So we deal with time prices and we deal with time prices for a, time prices basically just defined how many hours or minutes you have to work in order to buy something that you want to buy, right? And the reason why we do that is because by using time prices, we can get around the problem of inflation. It doesn't matter. Right. Inflation is 1% or a million percent because we are always dealing with nominal prices divided by nominal wages, right? So that's part of it. Second part of it is we don't have to do adjustments for purchasing power parity. Thirdly, we don't have to do adjustments for um, exchange rates. Um, We just take Nominal price divided by nominal hourly wage, you know, those are typically provided by, uh, by uh, governments and international agencies and so on. And um, from that, we get a sense of, you know, how much, how much better off people are than they used to be. Okay. And, and there's also another interesting element of that in there too. I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead or and you help guide me, of course, because I mean, like in, in terms of, I, I read this section, but it's <laughs> in terms of being able to summarize it, you're the expert. So um, the, uh, there's this this interesting thing that I was introduced to at this part of the book, which is this sort of personal resource abundance, and then there's the sort of um, population resource okay, abundance yeah, in that sure, discussion. Sure. I wonder if you can make that yeah. distinction. That was actually very interesting to me because it's really keys in on the, the different ways people seem to think about abundance and human progress. So if you could explain that, I think that would be excellent. Sure. So um, 
So let's stick with our example of a pound of pork. 1980, pound of pork, hour of labor. 2024, pound of pork, half an hour of labor. Your typical worker is 100% better off. He can now get two pounds of pork for the same amount of work. Okay, you're with me. Mm -hmm. So that's the personal abundance level. Population abundance level, we then multiply that increase in personal abundance by the, by the additional number of people who are in the world. So if the labor force increased from uh, one person to two persons, and they are both enjoying 100% increase in uh, uh, pork abundance, then we can say that the population or the global uh, uh, population level of abundance has increased by 200%. And so population level abundance, all it means, you take the personal level of abundance, you multiply it by the number of people, and that's when you get the population abundance. And that, that basically shows us that uh, <laughs> the more people you have, the more abundance you have, because their, 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 their slices of pizza are increasing, and also the overall size of the pizza is increasing. So maybe, maybe that's an, another way of explaining it, is that personal abundance is just looking at, at the slice of the pizza that you that you have, that you are eating, and it's increasing, right? But then the overall pizza pie is increasing. That's the that's the general or population level abundance. And 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 in summary, and I know it's it's unfair to summarize this much work, but for the but for the sake of our discussion today, I mean, it it seems that you folks have found on net. I mean, that from the stats that your guys are crunching, I mean, like most of us are are better off from both the personal abundance side and the population abundance size uh, side. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's the counterintuitive part of. Uh, of of how how Malthus and Thanos and uh, Ehrlich were looking at it, we mm-hmm. we can we can basically show with numbers that uh, increased number of people on Earth has resulted in increasing population of uh, sorry resource abundance rather than decreasing it. And and I guess you know uh, in terms of the, the spoiler alert or namesake of the book, do, do you feel that that like you know you're comfortable therefore concluding indeed that we we are now sort of living in the era of superabundance, if you will? Like if someone were to talk to you about that, you're, you'd tell them, hey, look around, like that that's where we're at, kind of thing. Or is it still, you know, if if things continue, are we heading towards more superabundance? Or like you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, so so like how do you feel about where we're at now then? Well, superabundance has a technical meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, again, for, for your viewers, uh, if, if Ehrlich, if um, Malthus, if Thanos were right, then things should be becoming less abundant, but they're becoming more abundant. But abundance can increase relative to population at two different speeds. Imagine that population is growing at 2%, but resource abundance is only increasing at 1%. Hmm. We just call it increasing abundance. But if population is growing at 2% and abundance is increasing at 3%, we call that superabundance. So superabundance has a technical meaning, which is that abundance is increasing at a higher rate than population growth. And to that end, we have looked at 18 different data sets. And what we found that in every single case, the average has increased at a superabundant rate. Mm. Basically, people are on average creating more wealth than they consume. Right. And and cuz and and you keep and you've noted multiple times throughout the conversation and I want to get into it now that there is this sort of counterintuition or sort of um initial feeling that a lot of people have like if you were to state that to them point blank they would say, you know, in in some cases they don't feel like that or you know the way they observe that some things have gotten worse than not. Um you know, to give those people a fair shake, where do you think 
if it's not in the data that you talked about, like if you know we take for for proven and granted as we just talked through that this the material side and various aspects of human pro- progress, as you've talked about in part two of your book, that that's doing okay. The, the the both personal resource side and also the population resource abundance, that stuff's doing okay. Um, on the other hand. I'm not sure, but of course you tell me if you disagree, if it's totally fair to say that tons of people that are talking about duress and lots of problems that we have today, they're not completely out to lunch. They're, they might be feeling something. So wh- wh- what do you think that might be that they're feeling? Is it just that we're in interesting political times or there's a, we ju- our generation has its own challenges that you know they're simply not equipped to face type of thing, either politically or culturally? Where do you think some of the, the sort of um, the climate of angst and the climate of some of our own apocalyptic thinking is coming from if we put aside this this material discussion and and the human progress discussion because we've already talked about that's not really the case that that there's there's many people suffering from that perspective well i mean the, the first point that i would make is that of course i'm not arguing and nobody on my side is really arguing that we'll live in a utopia in fact i believe right. very strongly that we are never going to reach utopia we are not um, the, the world without problems. There is always going to be new problems. And in fact, I would go even a step further and to acknowledge that solution of every problem creates new problems. Solution of widespread famines where people were dying like flies by the millions has led to, for example, obesity. And so that was a new problem. It was a lesser problem, but it was a problem. And now we have Ozempic, which is dealing with the problem of obesity. But that's created a new problem, a tiny problem in comparison to the famines of the past, which is that people who are on Ozempic also seem to be losing some muscle mass. And so now we have to fix that. And uh, and, and so you can see how... Um, how every solution to a problem creates new problems. And, and, and that, that's just, I think, a, an aspect of human life, of human nature. This is how the world has always been and always will be. Um, so, so the first point is no utopia. Uh, second, new problems are arising all the time. They need to be resolved, again, through human innovation. Um, so, um, so, so because the, you've got new problems coming on, um, you know, people sort of pocket the, the good things that have happened. You know, no more famine, no more little children dying in their mother's arms. You know, um, inf- uh, child mortality used to be 50% in Europe only 300 years ago, right? Right. Uh, now it's down to 0.3% in Nordic countries. <laughs> so we pocket those and we focus on the new problems and we sort of... Um, and 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 that makes us feel as though we are not making progress, even though even though we have made tremendous progress. We just pocketed those big gains already, and we have created a new threshold on top of all the gains that we have made. Right um, now, but I think I think the problem is deeper than just changing the threshold. You know, the the floor. The floor keeps on changing. Um, and the problem is that uh, the, 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 there is actually a bit of a market failure going on here, and that mm-hmm. is in how the media interacts with the human brain. The media, um, uh, basically, we have evolved to consume negative news. We are negativity-biased human beings. Mm-hmm. That, that's part of our evolution. It is hardwired into us. And the media understands this. They always understood it. It's, uh, you know, this is why it's, if it bleeds, it leads. 
This has always been the case. Every newspaper uh, in, 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 in history has always started with the most shocking stories. And now that the newspapers have to compete uh, with very small profit margins uh, against, um, against TV and against, um, against uh, websites and things like that, right. what started happening is that there is, a, there, is a, uh, there is a drive to the bottom whereby the more shocking the news is, the more shocking the headline is, the better for the bottom line. And so the good news gets squeezed out of the rep- reporting. Uh, if, if it's reported at all, it may be on page 64, you know. Right, right. And, and people don't generally get the good news. They only get exposed to the bad news. And so, and so your average news consumer is basically freaked out 24-7 right. about how the world is going to the handbasket because, because you have this competition, this, this drive to the bottom uh, amongst the news media for the most horrific headlines. Right. And uh, th- this is a problem, again, a problem uh, that has sprung up from a good thing, which is that you know, we have much more media to choose from, but it's a problem that we'll have to solve somehow. Mm-hmm. But, but but we don't have a technical solution or innovative solution to it yet. But I do think that it's the it's the negative coverage uh, in the media driven by competition, which is why I refer to it as a market failure, uh, that um, that is actually driving us up the wall, thinking that everything mm-hmm. is coming to an end, whereas in fact the reality is much better. Mm-hmm. That's such a very interesting point too, because it seems like only within the last like two or three generations as well to add another dimension to your point that it's not only just negative news per se that we're getting. It's like we're getting more information and more news than ever uh, and more insight into all parts of the world on a daily basis as the world becomes more connected. You know, I mean, I don't think there's been ever another time in history where people are getting people in Canada are getting instant news about something bad that happened in East Asia, for example, on a constant recurring basis. So it it kind of creates a global picture of you're not only getting local negativity, let's say, on an ongoing Absolutely. basis, you're getting global negativity. Absolutely. I realized this for the first time in 2011 when I was watching on my smartphone uh, the, uh, the events in um, Fukushima, the, um, the, 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 uh, the tsunami in Japan. Right. Um, you know, so, so in real time, you can see horrible things happening on the other side of the world, whereas previously you would be ignorant of them and therefore you know, perhaps have a higher level of mental equanimity. But... Um, um, uh, but um, sorry, I, I, I had a point, but but I think I lost it. Maybe maybe I'll recover it sometime. But um, uh, but yes, we we have this problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're saying that. So, so maybe there's a, there's another super abundant problem of ongoing information and news. So we, you said that that's a new problem that we're dealing with. So I guess so. So would you sort of just chart that as sort of just essentially like a cultural social problem that we should probably be taking a serious look at? I mean, like I, I don't mean that in like a facetious way. Like I, you know, like I think a lot of people sort of take for granted how much we're exposed to and sort of shrug their shoulders and say, you know, that's the way it is. We're on our smartphones. We're constantly exposed to news. But it would seem to me a conscious effort to actually not be tapped in that much and not be that you know, sort of, I guess, um, sort of passive and, and you know, sort of cr- a creative sort of passiveness when it comes to just how much information we're absorbing. That might be something that actually needs to be addressed consciously if people are, yes, are not going to yes. feel doomsday every day, right? Yes. So, so uh, I, I think the end of, cha- of chapter one or part one of the book is basically says that we cannot change human nature. We cannot change our negativity biases, but we can, we can understand them and thereby 
be able to better deal with them. So, for example, Steven Pinker has suggested that uh, kids in primary school, um, maybe high school, I think he was referencing high school, should be exposed to psychology 101 and uh, basically understand the, the basic functioning of the human brain and the biases with which we come into the world. Um, you know, I have friends who don't think that education matters much. I, I actually don't think so either beyond high school. But I think that mm-hmm. there is a place in high school for for informing children or young people about the basic functionings of the world. If it's okay, if we still think that it is worthwhile to explain um, to young people the basic functioning of the solar system, the fact that Earth is rotating uh, around the sun and, you know, th- that, that it's not the other way around and uh, why does the sun rise in the east and sets in the west and things like that. If, 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 it's, if, it's, if it's still valuable to explain longitude and altitude and, and uh, whatever else um, to children, then, then surely it is also worthwhile to explain the basic functioning of the human brain to children and explain to them that uh, there is such a thing as negativity bias that uh, we are pre predisposed to mm. react to bad news in certain ways and consequently this is what this is the play of the media and if if young people understand that if they are if, if they are prepared for adulthood and, and for lifetime of consumption of news by understanding the basic workings of the human brain, then maybe we can limit the damage that is being done. Mm-hmm. That's actually a very interesting point. And I think it'll bridge nicely. I'm just looking at the time here. So for our last pillar of conversation, sort of our last discussion, fittingly, I want to sort of discuss what's the last part of the book, part three, you know, it ultimately deals with you know, uh, human flourishing and its enemies. So can you just give us a high level sort of idea of, you know, what, why, you know, it, it almost seems sometimes in these books where we're trying to, pr- where we can introduce something, we can prove something, we can run the statistics and run a conclusion. But why, why is part three in here in your book? I found it very interesting. Well, because there is no guarantee. Um, in, in fact, th- th- there was this weird movement in the progress studies, um, st- you know, of course, started in Germany uh, with Hegel, <laughs> that saw human progress as unavoidable or inevitable part of human history. And I, I just don't, don't buy it. I, mm. I think that th- there is, I, I think there are certain things that we are never going back to doing. For example, I, I don't think that we are ever going to sacrifice children in order to bring in better harvests, right? Because we know better. But could we become a society that is more, uh, that is much poorer? Could we become a society which is much gentler, much less tolerant? Of course we could. And so, and, and so because progress is not unavoidable, it is very important to, to identify at least some of the things that could bring progress to an end and consequently make our lives much worse, or certainly those of our children. Mm-hmm. No, I, I like that point that, you know, it's it's that uh, the apocalypse is certainly not inevitable and doomsday is certainly not inevitable, but progress is also certainly not inevitable. And I, and I like that point. And in one section, you... Um, um, you sort of outline, and it's called the failed ideas of the counter enlightenment: racism, fascism, and Marxism. And um, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I want to sort of circle back at the very end, which I'm doing now, to this idea that you, it seems, if I'm reading you correctly, of course, that you know you think that there's really 
um, I shouldn't say only one, but there is one main framework that's proven sustainable for progress and actually has a framework for progress. And it's effectively sort of the the, the values and the sort of ideas of the, the Enlightenment and, and, and sort of lowercase l liberalism and so on and so forth, that this is one of the sort of um, incubators of and best frameworks for the kind of progress we've been talking about, and that it was sort of these counter-Enlightenment ideas that are sort of um, counter to progress, essentially, yes. if, that, if I'm reading you correctly. Yes, certainly in general, but most specifically, it's important for countries on the, on the, um, on the frontier of innovation. So uh, you could have, hypothetically, not only hypothetically, realistically, you can have countries which are dictatorships, which are not liberal democracies, uh, who will grow at a very fast pace mm-hmm. because they are borrowing or stealing or buying um, technology and best ways of doing things from, from advanced nations, right? So you can have even a very badly run country, which is experiencing a lot of human progress because simply they are catching up with, with Western nations by buying their technology, right? But if you are on the frontier of innovation, like the United States or Switzerland or Britain or Israel, uh, which means that the, the only growth that you can have is through new innovations, then this is where liberal democracy and uh, free market capitalism are the best ways of doing that, right? So uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, when it comes to economics, uh, obviously you need the free market in order to sort out between bad ideas and good ideas. All these people who have all these ideas on which we rely for, for innovation, most of those ideas are bad. And the only way to sort out between them is to have the free market to choose between a BlackBerry and, a, and an iPhone, right? And, 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 but without the free market, then you can have somebody like Joe Biden deciding between the winners and the losers, uh, giving subsidies to some, punishing others. And before you know it, uh, you may be going down the wrong path because the government has put its finger on the scale. Right. Mm-hmm. So you need a free market. And that's that's one of the dangers mm-hmm. that if we lose the free market, especially the learning function of the free market, sorting out, sorting bad ideas from good ideas and then improving on the good ideas. If we lose that, then then you cannot have that kind of growth uh, in the countries on the frontier of innovation. And, and once innovation stops in these countries, then 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 they are not going to grow. And once the rest of the countries catch up with them, if they have bad if they're bad institutions, then they are not going to innovate either, and humanity is just going to stagnate, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing that is important is, of course, freedom of speech and, 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 and generally freedom of association, freedom to publish, say things. Uh, and um, uh, because, because if certain areas of research are, uh, are, are prohibited from pursuing, then, then of course, the, the, the whole knowledge creation in the West is going to suffer. So in the past, for example, you couldn't talk about uh, heliocentrism and things like that. That was punished. Now, nowadays, you cannot talk about um, IQ differences or sex differences, et cetera, et cetera, because those are taboos. And as those taboos increase, then, of course, it will be very difficult to do research in the areas which are politically incorrect. And I think that, um, and I think that that's potentially very dangerous. Uh, so freedom of speech, freedom to publish, freedom to think, uh, freedom to think you can, you actually cannot have freedom to think without freedom to, to, to speak and freedom to publish because you if I'm prevented from saying something, 
then your freedom of thought is restricted by not being able to hear what I had to say. Right. So if, if you shut down people with unpleasant opinions, according to the, uh, according to the authorities, uh, then people cannot think properly because they cannot, they cannot internalize all that information which is prohibited from being expressed. So freedom of thought, publishing, association, um, all of these are things very important. Um, the, the, the West has been always, hasn't been always very good, but because of a variety of reasons, such as, for example, it's interjurisdictional competition, you did have a situation where people who couldn't say something in country A could move to country B and say there and, and, and so forth. That this is what really saved us. This is what has brought about the economic progress of the last 200 years. And finally, it's... Um, it's a question of population growth. So I'm a liberal um, in, in the classical sense, and uh, I think that uh, um, parity in rights between men and women is incredibly important. Um, but uh, the, the problem of female oppression uh, that has been prevalent for thousands of years has been resolved in favor of parity of rights. But that has led to a new problem, <laughs> which is that uh, uh, women are having many fewer babies than they used to. Right. And in a liberal society, uh, we cannot force parents to have more children than they would want to. But it is a problem that we need to solve, because if the world uh, is going to have substantially fewer babies and substantially fewer people in the future, then um, uh, then our innovation is going to also stop. The only way around it would be through something like artificial intelligence. If we can get to artificial intelligence before we start decreasing in population. That's an interesting point. And, and as far as, um, back to your point about, you know, the, uh, and actually, well, many things you touched on there is actually proving as, as you were saying that the progress is not necessarily inevitable, although things are looking good right now as of today in, in many fronts. Um, from, so from both that political and sort of cultural front, I mean, like, do, do you feel that we're, um, that some, I guess, like some, some different, uh, you know, political movements, ideas and so on and so forth today are truly in danger of sort sort of, I guess, ruining the kind of frameworks that have created progress. I mean, for example, it, whether it's um, on the quote left or on the quote right, however those terms are now used, it doesn't seem like any of the mainstream political opinions are shying away from different types of industrial planning, picking winners and losers, as you were saying, managing culture a certain way, or, or you know, basically that, that type of identity politics, culture war type of stuff. Um, when you see specifically not not on the economic front on the overall human progress front which is a, a very interesting story as you're saying but in the specific political moment that we're all experiencing today in, in different countries does, does that worry you at all in, in in your sort of thinking in terms of uh basically some of the some of these folks if they're not careful could actually sp- effectively spoil the whole arc that you're talking about yeah, I mean, I, I guess I should probably stick to the United States, although I do follow the Canadian political scene um, quite quite a lot. Um, in the U.S., we always had a political party which was in favor of free trade and innovation and capitalism and uh, and so forth. Um, you know, that was the Reagan consensus uh, Republican Party. And now the Republican Party has basically transformed into a right-wing version of the Democratic Party. Democrats were always anti-capitalist. and Well, not always, but in the recent decades, I should say. I mean, JFK was pretty pro-capitalist. I don't want to to oversimplify. But in the last few decades, let's say in the last 40 years, the the Democrats were always much more skeptical about capitalism, and they sort of emphasized the issues of, you know, envy and resentment and... uh, and, um, 
uh, and redistribution. And of course, the Republican Party now is very similarly emphasizing the resentment, the envy, redistribution, protectionism. And as, as a consequence, you now have both political parties who are not terribly keen on competition, who are not terribly keen on, uh, on uh, uh, free market economics. And that's potentially very dangerous because, as I said, um, the, 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 the free market is important because it's a giant learning machine. It tells you what you need more of what you need less of, what's good and what's bad. And if the government simply gets involved in these things and it destroys the learning uh, mechanism, then, uh, then we could end up stagnating or even going backwards. So, so in that sense, of course, um, you know, economically, we've got this problem. And when it comes to freedom of speech, um, you know, I think that Republicans overall are, are better on this issue uh, than, than Democrats. Um, um, and, and hopefully we have seen post-woke and uh, these speech codes are eventually going to go away. But, um, but not at universities, I don't think. Not, not for a while. Hmm, that's an interesting one. And I, I'm looking at the time here. I do have to move us to our formal wrap-up, although, of course, we could continue on many of these topics. Um, Marion, let me say we, we've talked about a lot, and I think the conversation was great. And I'm going to try, if we can, here to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Uh, in each episode, I ultimately do want the guests to have the last word, though. So let's try and do that by asking you the formal last question, which is, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether we're better off than before and everything else we've talked about. In other words, if you wanted someone listening to us here to leave the conversation with one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would you want them to take away? There has never been a better time to be alive. Um, if you think that life was better in the 1950s, then you're probably not a woman or a black person or gay. Um, if you think that the world was better 100 years ago, then you are not probably thinking about child mortality or dentistry or travel and, and so forth. Uh, so there has never been a better time to be alive. The only time better to be alive is tomorrow or a year or 10 years from now when medical and technological progress will be even greater and will be much richer and so forth. And all of these, all of this progress that has happened, especially over the last 200 years or so, was a product of the human brain. It hasn't happened because a deity pulled a lever or uh, something like that. It happened because men and women in free countries were able to pursue their, uh, their, their, they were able to apply their God-given talents and to pursue their desires and their passions in order to and, and, and uh, inadvertently, they created a much better world through, through simply the, the, Smithian, um, um, the, the Smithian pursuit of self-interest has resulted in a world which is much better for everyone. Um, so we can confidently say that on average, human beings create more value than they destroy. They are not just consumers, but they are producers. And, um, and long may it continue. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, Marion Tupi, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. 
The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.